take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. This is Rachel Gilmore here with our latest episode of Field Preachers, and I was so excited, best morning ever, when I got a Facebook message from Sean Peters, who I've not been able to meet in person until now. We are sitting together at First Baptist Orlando, overlooking the lake, gorgeous view, and um, he reached out because he saw I was near him, and we'd been meaning to connect, to record a podcast, just to get to know each other better, and now here he is. So welcome. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> what a pleasure to be with you and this beautiful location. I wish everyone could see this lake that we're looking at right now <laughs> and experience the beautiful weather here in Orlando. Great. Well, tell me, I know that we first connected when I was doing research on veteran church planters, the grandmas and grandpas, those of us who've been in it like 10 years or more, and your name came up. So tell me a little (laughs) bit about your history with church planting. Well, I don't know. I don't know about the grandpa part, but I'll 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 take it. Um, I, I have been I started in this adventure. I'm a second career church uh, minister, actually, I was in education for many years before feeling a call to uh, to full time ministry, and it was through a church plant in South Florida that I experienced uh, that. I was a worship leader at the time, and the pastor who was planting that church and I connected. He asked me if I'd come and be his worship leader, and I did. So I got to watch a church grow from uh, you know eight people in a living room to over four hundred people within three years. It was such an exciting. Wow. Um, Uh, Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. And through that, I really felt a strong call to do this kind of work. So he he walked me through the candidacy process and I started seminary work. And I well, first I talked to my wife and I said, hey, uh, I think we're going to make a shift here. What do you think? And we we talked about it and she said, yeah, let's let's do it. And um, so I worked through the process here in Florida to uh, to plant churches. And um, I think it was 2000 and six maybe when I met Paul Nixon for the first time and Mm. Paul was the director of new church development in Alabama West Florida conference at the time and he said hey we've got some real opportunities over here would you like to come and so my first appointment was on staff at a large church starting a new service for them it was a it was a uh, church within a church kind of a model they were trying to do something to reach young people they had a gymnasium and so we started that and then I was appointed to start my first uh, church, my first church plant, which was in Crestview, Florida. Uh, it's as far north in Florida as you can go before you hit the Alabama line. Mm-hmm. And um, we were, we we had this vision of this um, really cool coffee shop type uh, worship. It was we were we were you know my wife and I are both very progressive, so we had this this vision of of being multicultural and reaching into the LGBTQ community. And this was a very, very, very conservative community that we were in. And Mm -hmm. it was real hard to to get in. But what we discovered was we were starting to find that there were these little pockets of people who were desperate for a church like what we had. And um, they started coming to us. And then we began to realize that the location where we were at was in a pretty low income area. So we started working with people in poverty and it was such a beautiful thing. And, um, uh, like it. it was. It was really beautiful. But unfortunately, after three years, that conference had a had a plan in place where new churches had to be fully sustainable by the end of their third year. And we were not there. And OK, so let's talk about that mm. for a minute, because how many church plants are fully sustainable after three years, <laughs> especially <laughs> parachute drop churches where you're starting <laughs> with absolutely zero people. Right. And that's yes. that it just seemed uh, it just seemed really 
really, uh, really impossible to do that. So mm -hmm. we, you know, we ended up having to go through a period of really uh, grieving the loss mm. of that after it was over. But, um, and I learned a lot. I mean, I learned an awful lot from that experience. And um, uh, did you ever consider like leaving ministry after that? Because yeah. I've heard a lot of planters when it closes, they mm -hmm. just sometimes walk away entirely, like even move out of the state just to yeah. really uh, start a new and a fresh because they're yeah. so hurt by yeah. that experience. It definitely was that experience. We, we, we equated it with losing a child. You know, it was, mm. we had birthed this baby and, uh, and then, and then it was no longer. So I had to go through, uh, quite a bit of counseling, um, and some, some downtime. I was appointed to a large church where I could be on a staff and not really have to oversee, um, uh, ministry. What was interesting about the church that I was appointed to was they were getting ready to start a celebrate recovery ministry, and they asked me to oversee the the uh, d development of that. And little did they know <laughs> that I probably needed that as much as the people that were coming to us uh, mm. needed it. So God had a good plan for me there, and I, I really healed over two years. And then I got a call from the director of new church development here in Florida, inviting us to come down and plant a new church here in Florida. So we're about an hour east here of, of Orlando, right here on the East Coast. And we started Mosaic in 2017. Wow. Yeah. Now, how did you go about starting it? Was another parachute drop or? <laughs> yes. Again, you went yes. back to that yes. model. I'm a, oh, I'm a glutton for punishment, apparently, <laughs> is what I am. Um, I talked extensively with the director of new church development before we came down here. And I, I told him everything about what had happened with my former plant and the pain that I had experienced. And they had a really good system in place. They still do have a really good system in place here in Florida for church planters. It's a five-year program, um, fully sustainable throughout the five years on a sliding scale. So after three, you start to pick up a little bit more of your, of your overall budget. This last year, we picked up 25% of our overall budget next year. We'll pick up 50%, 75%, and then ultimately at the end of the five years, you should be fully financially sustainable. But um, there is a large pool of uh, endowment money that has been set aside here in Florida specifically for new church development. So um, so f re financial resources have not been an issue for us, and they have been That's incredibly supportive. Blessing. Yeah, yeah, hugely supportive of what we're doing. We inherited an old... Uh, Methodist Church that closed down, and they have poured, oh gosh, probably tens of thousands of dollars in that building for us to help renovate it for us and get it to a place where we can use it. Well, that's really unique because some annual conferences, I know like where I come from in Virginia, they would say, we have this grant money, we'll fund you, but we won't fund brick and mortar. Mm. We won't help pay for renovations. You have to raise that money on your own. Right, so right. that is a huge blessing yeah. to have. Well, I think the way they did it here, they set aside a separate account through the sale of closed United Methodist churches, they took the money from the sale of those closed churches and they reinvested it back into a fund that was specifically for building for new church development. Mm -hmm. So we have the we have the new church, new church development fund, which would you know help cover salaries and some of those basic expenses, and then we have another pot that uh, we can draw from to to work with buildings and, you know, that kind of thing. So that's been great. So tell me about your timeline a little bit when it was a parachute drop. Mm -hmm. Like how long after you arrived in town, did you start gathering people or yeah. doing your pre-launch services before you, I mean, did you know that building was kind of where you would launch worship when you were appointed there? Uh, unpack that a little, yeah. a little bit for me. Actually, Palm Bay is a really large city. It's the largest city in Brevard County now. So we, 
We're pushing 120, 130,000 people. It's rapidly growing, becoming somewhat of a suburb of of Orlando, even though it's 45 minutes away. A lot of our folks travel over here to go to work. So it's a really growing area. It's um, relatively, uh, you know, relatively um, low uh, mortgage rates. You know, you can live there uh, for for a good price. So when we got there and I grew up an hour south of there. So that that one of the one of the blessings of coming back to this area is I know the area real well. I spent most of my growing up years here and I do have some family in the area too. So I started off with some family members who said, "Okay, I guess we'll we'll help you if you really need us to to uh to be involved." And so they came on board with us, but we still had to do the hard work initially of meeting people. I went to a few different local churches in the area. They gave me an opportunity to speak and share the vision, cast the vision of what we were doing. And um, we we were able to get a team of probably about eight to 10 people together initially that first summer. And oh, that's um, a good number. Yeah. Yeah. We, I remember our first meeting was in a Panera, the back room of a Panera. And we were, um, we were, I was sharing the vision with about eight people around a table and, um, and, uh, you know, so that kind of launched it from there. We, the building that we're currently in was not on our radar. The west part of town, which is the part that's really uh, projected to be the growth area in Palm Bay, was where they asked me to plant. The, the, the district owned some property out there, but there wasn't a building on it. So we had a hurricane in that first summer we came, 2017. And um, we were shut down. The city was shut down for a little while. And we, ended up going over to that church where we're at currently now just to take a look at it. Um, it had a lot of damage. It was old. It was run down, but it was a building, you know, and we thought this is a, we <laughs> could, Holy grail. Yes. Church yes. Right. We don't, I, can we not be portable? Can we, can we avoid <laughs> having to talk to the principal, the schools and all of those things? And um, so the district superintendent said, well, gosh, we are going to sell this place, but if you guys want to try to do something here, um, let's, let's do it. So we, the sanctuary was uninhabitable, but the fellowship hall and the education wing was, was workable. So we started painting and cleaning and we started just small gathering right in there. And we decided what we were going to do from the get go was do a meal based kind of worship approach, a dinner church kind of a thing. And uh, I had explored that for a little bit. And our conference here is really big on, on uh, fresh expressions and doing kind of new, new ways of, of doing church. So, so we started by uh, inviting people to come to a dinner on a Thursday night. And little by little, what we began to see was more and more folks were coming. Particularly what we were seeing was uh, some of our low-income people, people who were really in need of a good meal started coming. The, the uh, neighborhood that the church is located in is fairly low-income. And uh, then we began to discover that we had a pretty large homeless population there in that area of Palm Bay as well. Mm -hmm. So we started reaching out, going out to the camps and talking to the homeless folks and saying, you know, hey, we have this meal. Would you like to come? And um, that started to grow on Thursday nights. We started to see more and more people. It was not what we were expecting. It was homeless folks, folks living in poverty who were really looking for food. And then a handful of people who had a heart for that kind of work as well. And the DNA of Mosaic really began to develop in that first summer and that first fall that we were going to be a mission church, that we were going to be uh, called to really connect with the homeless community and people who are living in poverty and create a, uh, a faith community for folks, uh, you know, for folks like that. And uh, we also decided first that first summer that we were going to attend the Pride Parade there in, here in Brevard County. 
and have a, a witness and a presence there to let our LGBTQ brothers and sisters know that there was going to be a new church that was going to welcome them. So we started to see some folks from that community begin to come. And that began to help us see, uh, this is going to be a multi, a multi-church, you know, um, Paul Nixon, I, I mentioned before, just recently wrote a book called Multi that's been really helpful for us. And um, so we, you know, we started seeing at different ages. We've got some 80-year-olds with some eight-year-olds. We've got white folks and, and black folks and brown folks. We've got gay folks and straight folks. And we've got uh, some island folks and we've got homeless people and we've got people with means. And it's just a beautiful, mm. uh, beautiful congregation that's developing there right now that really feels like the kingdom of God to me when I look at it. Wow. So when you think about the future of Mosaic, you know, three to five years from now, what do you envision? Well, I hope and pray that we'll continue on this this path and continue to grow as a as a multi type of a church. I can see that multi piece becoming multi site in a variety of different ways because we are such a large community, and there are parts of the community that that aren't being reached where we're at now. So I'd love to see us start at least one or two more campuses down the road. Um, probably continuing to use the same model. Our sanctuary is getting close. We're actually hoping that we're going to have a service in there on Easter Sunday. So that that may be a, a possibility for growth for us and maybe starting uh, a new kind of a service. I think there there is a, um, you know, part of this, Rachel, that I'm I'm struggling with is the anxiety and the fear of remembering where I was at the three-year mark of that mm. first church and knowing that right now, if we had to be financially sustainable at this point, we wouldn't be able to do it. And mm -hmm. I don't want to go through that again. So I'm really thinking really hard about how are we going to, how are we going to bankroll this thing? How are we going to make sure that we can, we can pay for the church and, and make it financially sustainable. So there's all sorts of different options that we're running through right now. Um, when we decided to renovate the sanctuary, we took everything out. We took all the pews out. We took the stage down and it's an empty, big empty room right now. So we're creating a multi-purpose space in there that we might be able to rent out and use for income. And we've got some great ideas about since we started the, um, the, the meal-based ministry, we've gotten uh, some folks that have come with culinary degrees and um, we're thinking a culinary arts uh, kind of academy to train some of our low-income people to, um, to get restaurant skills, develop a pipeline with local restaurants for job uh, opportunity. So there's all sorts of wonderful things that we're dreaming about. And much of that has to do not with necessarily worship, but with how do we, how do we be a church that, uh, that actually looks and, and acts in a lot of ways, like a nonprofit, like, yeah. uh, uh, like a community. Well, kind of like John Wesley's, you know, hey, new room, as you were talking about yeah. that in the multi-purpose <laughs> space, like what struck me when I yeah. was there in Bristol was that he didn't have pews because it was used as a hospital when it needed yeah. to be, or as a schoolroom, or as yeah. a, a meeting house for other groups that, yeah. you know, I think churches fall into this like unhealthy mindset that a church is a building where we go on Sundays, yeah. as opposed to a church is a building that we give away to the community yes. um, for the sake of building community, but also for the reality that we need to name here in, you know, 21st century Protestant denominations that, it's just not going to be sustainable a right. um, hundred years from now, even 50 or right. 20 or right. 10 years from now. Yeah. So how do we yeah, use our resources to help 
others, mm-hmm. but then also to help this faith community continue right. to grow. So right. I love the innovation and yeah. just the brainstorming. That's hard work though. It I mean, is. What it trains is. Seminary yeah. does not prepare us for things no like way. this. No and way. even local district gatherings, hate to call out the United Methodist Church here, but um, planters feel really isolated. Do you ever feel like that? Like absolutely. established church planters just don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, before I came over here, I have a, uh, uh, I guess we call it an accountability group or a clergy um, peer group, le- learning group. And I love my, mm-hmm. I love my clergy colleagues, but it's hard to have conversations with them because their, their focus is on the established traditional church. Mm-hmm. They're thinking bureaucratic stuff. They're wondering right now, is their church going to stay in the United Methodist Church if it splits and all of those kinds of things. And I'm thinking, most of my folks don't even know we're Methodist, you know, they, uh, they could care less about all of that. They just want to know that, you know, what we're doing in that community is going to continue. And yeah. So, yeah. And, and again, yeah, just to clarify, there's nothing against established church no. pastors, but it's so hard when the vast majority of Methodist pastors are in that mindset. Right. I know when I went to a district clergy gathering about two years into my plant, one of them turned to me and said, you're just the dog and pony mm. show. Like people will be entertained for a moment and then they'll <clears> come back to my <throat> church. And I'm like, wow, mm. that's an awesome spirit mm-hmm. of collegiality. Like mm-hmm. they just, they don't always understand what right. it's like. I think that's the, that's the key. I think they, the ones that I'm, I'm around the table with, they, they really love the idea of what we're doing, mm-hmm. but they don't really understand what, why we wanted to, what motivates <laughs> you to do this kind of work. And, uh, and and then just the, the you know the work that goes into it is so completely different than a I, you know I, I worked in an existing church I, I know the rhythms of uh, meetings and board meetings and committees and all of the things that go on in an established church uh, and it's completely different rhythm than what you have as a mm-hmm. as a church planter you're thinking outside the box so often of it's not about okay when the trustees get together, how are we going to talk about, you know, fixing the the toilets or whatever? And, and that does happen uh, sometimes when you, when you, when you have buildings, <laughs> you have issues, of course, but I think the majority of our emphasis and time is, is on, okay, how do we connect more with this community? How do we find ways of, of, um, of becoming a church that the this community sees not as a, a place, but as a movement, as something that's really happening within the community. So I, I've gotten very actively involved in the city of Palm Bay. I, I go to their uh, council meetings and have met with the the mayor and all the council members and said, hey, here's how, how can we help you? How can we come along and, and be a resource? And so we've gotten the reputation now of, of being the, um, the organization in the community that that they can call on when they have homeless issues. We we became the the cold night shelter. I, I know that sounds funny for a Florida church, but we do have some nights mm. where it gets kind of cold and yeah. folks who are sleeping outside need to come inside. So we've, over the last two years, we have opened our space up now to be the cold night shelter for Palm Bay. And we've um, um, we've really gotten uh, gotten connected in that way. And so there's just a, a number of ways I think that we can work outside the walls of the church to to make the church more accessible to what's happening in the community. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so you've experienced a lot, like you came into ministry as kind of a second career thing where you knew what it was like to have nights and weekends yeah, to yourself. Yeah, and yeah. then you're doing planting where, you know, you're working like 80 yeah, hour weeks. Yeah. Um, you know, what sustains you? What does self-care look like for you? How do yeah. you balance it all? Well, um, I have two children. They're grown now. So, and they're both on their own and that's, that's helpful. You know, when, when Sandra and my wife, Sandra and I, um, our kids, we, when we first got into this, our kids were in middle school and high school. And that was the big, a big part of our lives was making sure that we were focusing on the family as much as we were on the, on the church. Now I have the 
really the blessing that Sandra is very actively involved in ministry with me too. So, so we, you know, we share this journey together. And so we, you know, that that's helpful that we can, we can sustain each other and help each other as we go through it. But I also have to develop rhythms in my life of, um, I, I have to be around people who get what, what I'm, what I'm doing, you know? So I found a couple of other uh, guys in the, in the community. They're interesting. They're both nonprofit, nonprofit executive directors. They, they're not uh, church people. They, uh, they run their own nonprofits, but we can, we can talk about homeless ministry and we can talk about, you know, addiction and, and all of the other issues that we're, we're dealing with. And so that's been really helpful for me. We have a, we just get together once a week and we hang out and we have a beer and we talk about life and we lift each other up. And so that's been really, really encouraging and uh, life-giving for me. We take, Sandra and I say, we're going to take Mondays as our as our Sabbath. So uh, Saturdays are a big day for us at our church. We do uh, a lot of outreach on Saturdays. We have a um, mobile shower unit that comes. We provide showers. We have a meal on Saturdays and a lot of things. So so the weekends really are the busiest time for us. So Fridays is difficult because we know we're heading into Saturday and Sunday, which are going to be busy times. Our, our current uh, gathering is on Sunday morning. So we do a brunch, a big brunch on Sunday morning, and then we have a worship service. We found that Sunday morning worked really best for the people in the community. Even the unchurched folks were still like, well, doesn't church happen on Sunday morning? Shouldn't that be? Mm -hmm. So we moved from Thursday night to, to Sunday morning two years ago. We've been running uh, Sunday morning brunch church for two years now. And... Um, Currently, our, that fellowship hall holds about, uh, well, the, the maximum capacity is 120. We've been running about 120 on Sunday mornings right now. So, wow. so we're packed out in there, which is awesome. But you know, we're trying to get into that sanctuary. That's our next, that's our next move. So, um, so it's exciting to see the growth happening numerically. But um, I think that is a result of all the other stuff that we're doing in the community. It's nothing, we're not doing anything fancier you know, interesting on, so we're providing a great meal. And I think that draws people. But, um, uh, so I, I think at, once we get through on Sundays, I, I, I go, I go home and we say Mondays is our day and we try to really cut everything off and, and just relax and, and go to the beach or go for a walk or do whatever we need to do to, um, just to get recharged again. And, uh, then I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of books. Those are very, um, you know, those are very important for me too, to, you know, to really build my, my spirit up and, uh, and all that. Yeah. Wow. Um, so as you reflect upon your experience in church planting, what do you think are some of the strengths you have? Like thinking about self-awareness, how has God designed you in such a way that you have been able to cultivate and grow a new faith community? Mm. I think everything I've ever done, whether it's education or church planting has been a direct result of my you know, the way that I grew up, the way that I, 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 you know, the way that I learned as a child to be in the world and my, my particular gifts, I, my, my parents were great at an early age of sort of empowering me to do what I felt led to do. I wasn't put in a box and said, well, you have to be an athlete or you have to be this or that. My, uh, my earliest inclinations were towards the arts and I, I loved, um, theater and music and all of those things. So they, they gave me opportunities to engage in those areas. And I remember even at, at a very young age, maybe elementary school, getting invited to be the narrator of the play, you know? And, and uh, <laughs> so I think something about that uh, early uh, development as somebody who felt comfortable in front of people was helpful. Uh, and then as I, I grew, I started realizing that I love starting things. You know, if it was if it, I started a little lemonade stand or something, you know, and, and when I got into education, I was invited to start a new 
uh, theater program at a, at a local high school. So I started seeing these entrepreneurial types of, of drives within me. And then um, I had a, I'm going to share the story with you, even though it's rather painful for me, but it's, it's formational. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was in undergraduate school, I was working as a hotel night auditor. I was overnight shift. And uh, one night I was robbed by four young black men and it was, um, it was terrifying, you know, I mean, mm. to the floor, gun to the head, the whole, you know, the whole thing. And I, after that experience, I realized that I was terrified of young black people. And um, I was going through school to get my education degree. And once I graduated, I intentionally asked if I could go to an inner city Title I school so I could work with young African-Americans and Latino folks. And that experience is life transforming for me because I really felt at that point a specific call to um, to break down walls, racial walls, to work with people that were on the margins, people who were struggling, low income people. And um, that that birthed this whole, you know, this this whole world for me of finding ways not to be the person in power in communities of color or low income communities, but to go in and say, I'm here. How can I help you? What can we do together? How can I just listen and find ways of, of not and just find ways of coming alongside people. And so community development really came out of that for me. I, I began to study and listen to people who were doing really community development kinds of work where it was more about listening to the community and uh, asset-based community development kinds of things where, you know, you're, you're going in, not looking for how, how can I help or what are the problems here, but what are the gifts here and what, are, what mm -hmm. do people have to offer and, and how can we come alongside of them and encourage them to live into, you know, into God's calling in their life. And that really changed so much for me. So I, I look at my, my past, my experiences, everything that I've been through, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I say, God used all of that to bring me to where I am right now. You know, so, yeah. I love, I'm grateful that you shared that story and that you shared, you know, how that transformed your life, not with this whole like white savior complex, oh, I'll gosh. go in and save, but how yeah. can I learn from you? How Absolutely. can I walk alongside you? How can we be in community and relationship well, together? Well, you know, I thought about those four young men and I always, I still do. I still think about them. And I wonder, you know, I, I wonder what, you know, what compelled them to, 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 you know, end up in the life that they had chosen as young people, you know, the home life that they had to have been experiencing the pressure to, you know, to, to be involved in gangs or drugs or those kinds of things. And it's, um, instead of looking at, looking at that and going, oh, what a, you know, what a horrible thing. What are we, what if we looked at, at, at folks and just said, I, I understand, I, I get it. I, I, I'm sure that this has got to be you know, a terrible existence. How, how can we, how can we uh, help? How can we come alongside of you and, and, um, and, uh, you know, and help, help somehow make this, a, make a better life for you. So. I love that. And I love, you know, when you were sharing your heart about working with people experiencing homelessness, it made me think of, you know, the gathering, the plant mm. that I was a part of for 10 years and, and our heart for that. But then also, you know, your tie in uh, with helping people who are living on the margins and, and, you know, for my church plant in Virginia Beach, through our research in the community, we found that it began 
really in our context with preschool, because if preschool isn't affordable to all people mm-hmm. and you go in on your first day of kindergarten and everyone knows their letters, people can write their name, they know their colors and you don't, then you start your first day of school saying, I'm stupid. Mm-hmm. And you're not, mm-hmm. you just haven't had the opportunities that others did. So that led us to start like two preschool campuses actually that were, um, you paid based on your income so that we could bridge that gap and, and really start even from two, three, four, five years old saying, we see you, you matter, you're not alone because there's so much work to be done together, learning from each other and each other's stories. Mm. Um, as we try to Truly like God transformed the community yes, through yes. our openness and, and humility. Yeah, so. some of the uh, some of the movements, the place-based movements that are out there right now, Parish Collective and some of these others are so mm-hmm. inspiring because I do think that sometimes when we church plant, we don't think local. We, you know, mm-hmm. we think we think about where where's the best place for us to reach the most people that look like us and who can help bankroll our church instead of saying, mm-hmm what if God is calling us to be in this location that's not as sexy and <laughs> has a lot of needs, but we can really, really make an, a, an impact here and, and God can do some great things here. And that's exciting to me. To me too. And I'm hopeful that um, even with general conference and all that that might entail, that we're still able to maintain our strong connectionalism and that churches, you know, those big, strong, established first UMCs all over the U.S. They're amazing. They're important, but maybe part of their ministry and work is um, dedicating funding mm. to church planters Amen. and communities that desperately need, do you hear me? Send money to Mosaic <laughs> and Sean Peters, because that's the beauty of being yeah. in connection with each yeah. other. When you have so much, maybe you don't need a multi-million dollar renovation to your sanctuary. You know, it's only been 10 years. Maybe you could transform an entire community yeah. and offer them hope. Yeah. Um, so, I'm just so inspired. I'm so grateful mm-hmm. for the opportunity to meet you face to face. I hope you can attend our next veteran Absolutely. planter gathering as yeah. we just hang out in Airbnb for a few days. Uh, <laughs> love it. Love the idea. I know, right? Yeah. That's what we need. Yeah. Maybe we should do like a beach location this <laughs> hey, summer. <laughs> we can set that up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, any other, you know, parting words of wisdom? Like, what if there's someone out there who has either experienced you know, the, the death of a church plant, mm-hmm. you know, a closure of it and the pain of that, or someone who might be anxious about their future. They're mm-hmm. at that time of sustainability and they don't know if they're going to make it or not. What would you say to them? What words of encouragement do you have? For those that are grieving the loss of a church plant right now, or, or feeling like there may be that in their future, I, I definitely would say, you know, find somebody that you can, a professional, you know, don't, don't worry mm-hmm about the stigma of all of that. Find a professional, get counseling, um, let somebody walk you through the grief that you're feeling. Experience the grief. If, if you're going to lose a child, there's grief involved. And so you, you got to get, you got to get the healing that you need. Don't, don't um, just don't bury that and um, pretend that it's not there because it's going to come out some, some way, some shape or form, and it's not going to be good. So I would say definitely do that. It was hard for me because, you know, I'm, we're, we're conditioned to believe that we're tough and we can, we can make it. And, um, I just knew that I I couldn't continue on in ministry unless I got some healing for that. So that's Mm -hmm. really, really important. I also, I also think just in terms of anxiety, it's natural, you know, we're living in very anxious times, um, uh, politically and in, in the church world and so much going on. But I, I I even caught myself saying this to our folks on Sunday. I, I said, um, 
I was talking about, we were talking about Jesus in the wilderness, you know, and talking about just the, we, we have this beautiful open dialogue at Mosaic where we talk through the, the passages for the day and um, so many interesting perceptions from people, particularly people who are homeless, who have really ideas and thoughts that are so incredible and make you really think, you know, and go that if you're, if you didn't bring that uh, your voice into this conversation, we would have missed out on an awful lot. So, mm. so we, we talked about wilderness and somebody said, well, Jesus is always countering the devil with scripture. You know, I don't know a lot of scripture and what, what am I supposed to do about that? And I, I don't know an awful lot of scripture either. I, um, there's a couple of passages that stick in my head. And one of them, for whatever reason, is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I, I, that passage just sticks in my head all the time. And so I said, if you can like memorize one or two passages, and, and this is a good one. I said, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will guide your path. I said, that's a good one, because the temptation always that the you know, that the devil is, is, is throwing at us is, is to take care of ourselves and to look after ourselves and to do it ourselves and to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and make it all happen. And Jesus is showing us in the wilderness that to trust in the Lord is the right way forward. So mm. I think if there's anything for us who are Christ followers in these anxious times, it's let's just trust, you know, let's just <laughs> trust in the Lord with all our hearts. And uh, when we lean on our own understanding, it messes things up. And uh, I've done it, and I continue to do it all the time. But I try to come back to that little, that little, that little scripture. You know, just trust me. God says, just trust me, and it, it's going to work out. So, yeah, I love that. Mm, thank, thank you, you mm -hmm. so much mm -hmm. for your ministry, um, for your authenticity, you. and um, for taking the time driving Absolutely. out here to yeah. Orlando, sunny Orlando, to yeah. um sit and visit and thank share you. your story. It's a powerful one. Well, thank you for what you do for all of us as church planters mm -hmm. through through discipleship ministries, through Path One. It means an awful lot to, to know that we have a, um, you know, we have a tribe. We have a group of people that are, that are out there doing the same thing and we can listen to each other on the podcast and we can come together and, and share stories and lift each other up. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this latest episode of Field Preachers. I hope you learned as much from Sean as I did. I don't know if you could tell from our conversation, but this was recorded just before everything shut down with COVID-19 back in March of this year. But Sean's a great guy, and I loved hearing more about his experience of kind of grief and overcoming the closure of his first plant, and now how he's engaged in dinner church in this low-income neighborhood and is continuing. You can tell, guys, when we're church planters, we're kind of scrappy. So we're always thinking of different entrepreneurial ideas, you know, as he was talking about his culinary school or, you know, networking with restaurants and turning his non, uh, his faith community into kind of a nonprofit. Um, and also what he shared about self-care I thought was really helpful. So anyways, some great takeaways from Sean. Hope you enjoyed listening with us today. Catch us next week for our latest episode of Field Preachers. Field Preachers podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.